Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined today by a great crew. We have Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. Hey, Christine. What's up, Alex? We have Bimnet, a BBR friend from Galaxy Digital Trading to talk markets and hang out with us. Hey, Bim. Thanks for having me. And we have a great guest today from Galaxy Digital Trading, Trey Aslanian. Uh, how you doing, Trey? Doing well, brother. How a lot doing? of people don't know Trey, but he's been uh, trading in, in the crypto markets for at least over five years. He's an early Galaxy employee. Something um, like that. Yeah. You, you won't find him on uh, on social media or uh, or anything like that. He values his opsec, which I appreciate. But he's um, a legend. Yeah. Anyone who's been trading, uh, particularly in crypto OTC markets, uh, will will know Trey. Um, really happy to have Trey on the podcast today. So we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk markets a little bit. CPI print this week, uh, you know, was. I don't know, slightly good. I mean, slightly lower than expected. So that was positive. We're also going to spend a lot of time talking about Ethereum's forthcoming merge upgrade. A um, lot of news around that and some fun discussion we'll have. We're going to talk about Tornado Cash, the first uh, software um, and first smart contract ever sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control. This is the same group, uh, same department that sanctions like Al-Qaeda terrorists and North Korean hackers. Um has sanctioned an Ethereum smart contract. And we have a couple other things to talk about before we get into those. Bimnet, tell us what happened uh, in markets following the CPI print and where we stand today. Got it. Uh, well, thanks for having me on again. Uh, this was a pretty big week um, in terms of economic data. Um, inflation came in lower than expected. It printed 8.5% uh, year over year, and it pr printed flat month on month. So month on month, on average, uh, across the goods and services that are measured by by uh, the, the, the the Bureau of Labor, Labor Statistics, Statistics um, you know, prices were flat. And that was largely a function of energy prices that have moved a lot lower through the course of July and that are still continuing to move lower um, in August. Uh, but high level, this, this gave the market reassurance that inflation is headed in the right direction. Um, that it has likely topped. And the, the market started to, to price in sort of the Fed um, being being less hawkish um, in terms of, you know, how much they're going to raise rates in September, November, um, and through the, the rest of this year and early part of next year. Um, and what that did was it caused um, asset markets to uh, sort of rip higher. Um, you had a very aggressive rally in uh, the S&P, the NASDAQ, Russell, all of these assets, you know, taking out pretty big technical levels um, and high level. I, I do think that's an appropriate reaction um, if the Fed is going to pursue slightly less hawkish uh, monetary policy, um, if inflation uh, is going to start impacting the consumer less, you know, that sh and, and if there's less uncertainty about, you know, Fed monetary policy, you know, those are all things that should be constructive for, for risk assets. Now, I'd like to caveat this um, you know, lower than expected in inflation number um, with the fact that we had a much higher than expected uh, non-farm payrolls number um, at the end of, of last week, uh, which showed that the U.S. labor market is still incredibly tight um, and also that uh, wages uh, are, are, are really high. You actually had uh, unit labor costs uh, the, earlier this week also, you know, print print 
close to trend highs and average hourly earnings were, were still pretty high, um, you know, from from the, the the labor print last Friday. So all in all, we had some very uh, good pieces of data for for those of us that like to see risk assets like Bitcoin and ETH and stocks uh, trade higher. Nice. And then, okay, so on ETH though and Bitcoin, we've been they are trading higher, right? We've yep. seen Bitcoins at like the 24,000, above the 24,000 level. ETH has been trading as high as above 1900 around there, right? Which is pretty high considering if you recall, I think ETH bottomed um, in this cycle low so far, assuming we don't see another one around 800, right? Yeah, it's, it's um, up over 100% from the yeah, lows. Yeah, like if you timed that bottom, you're, you're doing well. I mean, Bitcoin, um, what, like in the 18,000s range, yep. still up pretty big from there too, but up less. Um, maybe this is a good we're going to talk about why that is um we know that both you know are sort of like high beta plays on risk assets generally but um eth really outperforming like what's your view on that um i think uh one um there's an actual fundamental positive catalyst that is happening which is you know the merge uh two um just base effects right um like when you go from you know a hundred to five cents and you go from five cents to 10 cents, the five to 10 cent move is a hundred percent, but the hundred to five cent move is, you right. know, uh, and so, so you do have a little bit of a, of a base effect in a lot of cryptos and you had that w w with ETH. Um, in addition, I do feel like, uh, a lot of the, the, uh, there wasn't that much participation in this move higher um, in terms of, you know, what I feel um, positioning looks like from from native types, from macro types. I think people are still relatively underweight. Um, and so when ETH, you know, goes higher and higher, you know, they're actually forced to chase because they're, they're perpetually underperforming. Yeah. Um, in addition, um, I do think that there's a little bit of, of, of short convexity from from the street um, there are a lot of large options trades that that went through over the past month or so in eth um, that essentially give the, the street sort of short vol and short gamma positioning um, on on moves to, to the upside and so you know you had a, a lack of positioning a, a fundamental catalyst and and then you actually have you know stocks and the broader macro markets right, also bullish also right. trading well yeah and so you know I think eth is uh, like fundamentally has been one of the, the best things to own in the market over the past like two months. And I see that continuing uh, for a little bit longer and I see more more capital coming coming into it. Awesome. So we're going to we're not going to do the long term economic and health of the markets conversation, which we know is still pretty tenuous at the moment. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the Fed, you know, what less hawkishness means. Does that mean a 50 bips rate hike in, in September? Does that mean lower than that? It certainly doesn't mean a full pivot to loosening. Not anytime soon yet, but um, we'll wait. We'll wait on that conversation. Um, let's go right to the merge, which is has been huge news for for a, a while now. At least I would say, like in the narrative, at least like the last three four months has been really driving the Ethereum discussion. Um, but a lot happening now. We have Christine here, obviously, who's been following this extremely closely. Just for quick background, if you don't know, as a listener, right, the merge is the concept and the and the event that will occur, and we actually are going to share details about when that is expected to occur, where Ethereum will move from proof of work mining to proof of stake uh, validating, uh, sort of as its consensus um, process, I should say. I don't want to say mechanism. It's it's actually more of a civil resistance thing. But so our more savvy uh, users will know, uh, listeners will know. 
the distinction I'm making, making, but it will, it's, it's seen as a very positive event. It's something that's been promised uh, by the Ethereum developers and founders for years and has been in the works for years and delayed and delayed. But now we appear to be on the precipice of it. Christine, what's the sort of current status? Yeah, well, developers um, discussed finally a date around activating the merge on mainnet, which they've been very, very hesitant to do, mainly because there were some key milestones they wanted to reach before scheduling the merge. Um, the last milestone to be reached before scheduling the merge on mainnet was the activation of this upgrade on the Gourley testnet. And um, the Gourley testnet um, underwent that transition to proof of stake um, yesterday, yesterday night. Um, so it was about 12 hours ago and developers saw that, you know, overall the upgrade went well. It, it didn't go, you know, as good as it could have gone, but it worked and there weren't any like major catastrophic bugs. Um, so then just a couple hours ago, developers talked about, all right, now that we have that milestone out of the way, when can we expect the merge to happen on mainnet. Um, they discussed getting their final client releases ready um, for the week of, I think, August 26th. That's about two weeks from now. Um, and then activating the first part of the merge two weeks thereafter, which puts you at like September 6th for the first um, upgrade, first merge hard fork. There's two that needs to get done. Um, and they, they, came to like agreement about, you know, 10 days after that upgrade, um, let's, let's do the, the rest of the merge, like the second part of the merge, which is called the Paris hard fork. Which is sort of like the final, the actual merge, right? I mean, the first, what is the distinction, right? The, my, my understanding, and, and it's definitely worse than yours, so please correct me here, is that the first upgrade Bellatrix actually isn't a consensus hard fork. It's the putting the logic needed to conduct the merge into the clients. Is that right? Or is it, is it something different than that? Um, it is a hard fork um, that changes the consensus layer, oh, but okay. it only changes the beacon chain. Um, so there's two different Got it. Ethereum networks. There's like the proof of stake version of Ethereum, which went live back in December, 2020. And then there's Ethereum as we know it today, which has been live since like 2000 and 15? Yep. Um, so the the first upgrade is the upgrade that goes on the proof of stake version of it. Goes Ethereum. on Beacon Chain. Yeah. And, and it also does, though, give, does it give, uh, is there software that gets updated then for the clients on the main chain today, or does that come later? No. Okay. But so it's gonna, just the Beacon Chain upgrade, though. Yeah, but they're going to release both softwares at the same time, just to like prevent any confusion. Um, the, the software for both the execution layer and the consensus layer, so the beacon chain and Ethereum, are going to get released on the 26th. I see. Um, but I think a really interesting part of this is that, you know, on the call, one of the client teams had expressed, um, you know, we would like more time to prepare our final client releases. Uh-oh. And <laughs> I think the response from most developers was like, no, you don't need more time. You basically can prepare those releases as the Bellatrix hard fork is happening. So like even if you put out a release on the 26th that you're not, you know, totally comfortable with, you can potentially put out another release like after Bellatrix goes live um, and that'll still give you like enough time um, to do any like final final like Updates tweaks that you want to yeah. make um and i think that just assumes that um 
even that extra time is enough, which I feel like is a little bit um, up in the air. But luckily, I think the reason why developers are, are less worried about this is because it's a small client. It's the Aragon client. It's, yeah, I was going to say, it's right? It's not a there, one. There's a couple of them, right? So you don't need all of them to be live for the, the merge. It does create some like uh, confusion or possibility for issues, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess for only a small subset of people that run that client, not, yeah, exactly. not like I Geth mean, or Parity or everyone's whatever. Everyone's going to run GoEthereum, yeah. right? Like, I think that's probably close to two thirds now. Yeah. yeah. So, so if those developers needed more time, do you think the story would be different? I think the story would be different if, if the major developers needed more time. But I think the reason why they wanted to bring all the clients up to date was to try and remove the dependency on Geth. And I think it's proving to be a lot harder than expected. Because when you're on these type timelines, and especially after the merge too, when you want to do things like dank sharding and, and other pretty complex upgrades, you're not going to be able to make everyone come to the finish line yeah. like at the same time. And it's clear that there's just some teams that are more prepared than others. Um, and in the and when push comes to shove, I think developers favor like shipping out the merge more than like the client diversity of making sure that everybody is on board yeah. and ready. Makes sense. I mean, you can still get that client diversity later, right? Yeah, so no biggie. That makes sense. So um, the it sounds like you're saying though developers in general, like the core developers, are really pushing an aggressive timetable. Yeah, it's well, still aggressive, even if most of the teams appear ready. Yeah, and if you think about the turnaround of ten days between Bellatrix and Paris, that's a pretty tight turnaround to expect everyone to get their um, get their nodes up and running, update all their infrastructure. Um, sure, it's something that they might be able to, to prepare in advance, um, just do it all in one go when you're doing Bellatrix. Um, but I was under the anticipation that it might be two weeks or longer between those two upgrades. Um, so I think that just goes to show again that developers are, are pushing a very aggressive timeline for this upgrade. So the merge is the merge of the current Ethereum uh, with these, the beacon chain and where they become one, right? And this that new proof of stake version of Ethereum. Um, that's why I ask about the first upgrade, whether that contains a consensus change to mainnet Ethereum or whatever we call it, current Ethereum, because, and we can go, we're gonna go a lot of places, I think with this discussion, but the, there's been a lot of talk of miners continuing to mine and not moving or shutting down or whatever, um, the proof of work version of Ethereum after the proof of stake version goes live or whatever we say. So the question is, when does that, it's on a fork, we wrote a lot about how that, how that isn't a fork, they're actually doing nothing, they're not forking, but that continuation chain, that chain split, that proof of work version, when does the split actually occur? It wouldn't happen then at Bellatrix in September 6th. It would happen at Paris whenever that happens around September 20th is the current estimate, right? Right, right. Okay, so there's no, there's no uh, like likelihood of ETHW, which is what they're calling it. I, I think it should be called Ethereum Cash, but that's just an aside. ETH Cash um, is a sort of throwback reference to the Bitcoin fork wars. But um, that, if it's going to happen, is something to look for when the Paris upgrade happens. Right. Because they don't update, they're not running on the beacon chain. They don't have to do anything with Bellatrix. Got it. What do we think the likelihood of a of an ETH POW? They're gonna try, right? Who's gonna try? Like that's what I mean. When you Chandler? say they, who do you mean? I'm not sure. <laughs> who, who is Chandler? I've never heard yeah, who of is him. That guy, Chandler Guo. You remember he's, back in the day, right? He was like a he's an ETH Classic guy, right? I guess, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he did some like you know Runs shenanigans. A yeah. Didn't he try to fork Ethereum Classic, like threaten the Ethereum Classic community? 
I mean, it wouldn't be out of character, I suppose. So, and then Justin's son. <laughs> yeah, that's throwing, the other one. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's, he, that's just like a, a customer acquisition thing for Poloniex, which is smart, right? Be the first one to list the, you know, the IOU tokens. The future yeah. IOU, Get people yeah. in there, right? Yeah. Like, Have you seen where those are pricing? Yeah, it's like, it was, I mean, I can pull it up right now, but it was like, it's been like 90 bucks. Um, it's like super liquid. It, they're, they're pairs on the Ethereum. 90 seems BMX. absurd. Dude, that's, that's, that's what it was. high, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... Dude, it, it, it that's, touched... Yeah, it's insane. I mean, the futures yeah. are implying, like, there were, I think at the most, they were like 50 bucks. Yeah. I think um, 30 so, now. Well, yeah, but like, like so it's absurd because, like, we think the likelihood is very low that any durable proof of work Ethereum ecosystem also, remains, wait, right? How does... Uh, how do the difficulty adjustments work in Ethereum mining? Are they two weeks? I'm not 100% sure okay, about that. Okay, because that's, that's another thing, question. right? Like a, a huge amount of hash rate drops off. Like yeah. they're not going to be able to produce blocks. For yeah, like you have the- 5% uh, of the network. You case. have the, um, like what they call the mining death spiral, right? There's a whole range of things that if they want to continue this chain, they're going to have to push as software upgrades, right? That potentially if they yeah. find themselves in any kind of mining death spiral situation, which, um, and then obviously the difficulty bomb itself, right? Which- when when would that kick in absent any changes do we know like it's pretty short wasn't it two months they extended it from the last time so that's like september yeah you should start to see longer block times on ethereum mid-september and then um you know see those block times double by october um yeah so, so that's basically why that's one reason for the aggressive timetable on the merge right is they don't want to push the difficulty bomb back again um, they really started, that's the thing. I mean, this, this other client team, like should have known the writing was on the wall when they only extended it by two months. The last time they extended the difficulty bomb, right? That's them. The developers really saying like, it's going to happen. We're yeah. pushing it. Yeah, that's exactly right. But yeah. if Gurley had been a failure yesterday on Wednesday, like a true failure, which it, it was mostly a success to be clear, it wasn't even a partial failure really. Um, then they probably would have, do you think they would have, uh, had to extend the difficulty bomb on main Ethereum? Yeah, if there was like some catastrophic bug found during the Gorley merge, I 100% think so. Um, But I think the reason why there wasn't more certainty around the merge when developers announced a delay to the difficulty bomb for two for two months like a couple weeks ago is because there is just in general so much uncertainty around this upgrade that even incremental incremental progress doesn't seem to get People, it doesn't seem to sink in yeah. with people anymore. Um, and, and so I think today's call was like a very big step, but still very incremental. Right, they yeah. needed to say like, it is happening, right? Like, which is kind of what they said, where we think it's probably happening is more accurate, right? But putting dates around, throwing dates out there, I think is maybe kicking people into gear. So um, why won't ETH POW work? I mean, let's unpack this a little bit, right? Like. They could just keep mining. To be clear, there will be a continuation, even if by mistake. Like some miners will just mine, and like then what will happen? Absent any social campaign to make it worth something, right? Like they'll be like, "Wait a second, we're paying money for electricity, <laughs> and the thing we're mining, this version of ETH, is worthless." Yeah. Right. But why can't it? Like even with a campaign, like w- what's the chaos that would ensue? Oh, it'd be mayhem in DeFi, right? Because you have you have stable coins, you have wrapped Bitcoin that aren't going to be honored on that chain. By so the issuers. All, by the issuers. They so have all these yeah. LP interests, all these like over collateralized depositions. Chainlink's not going to be pushing uh, price updates. So there's not even an Oracle. Um, yeah, no, there's not even an Oracle. I mean, th- I think there's probably some stuff you can do on like a retail scale to maybe take advantage of that. Um, but the fact is like all that MEV is going to get gobbled up by the miners in the first few blocks. Um, and then they're just going to be sitting on a pile of ETH worth 
uh, and ETH W, whatever, and yeah. uh, we'll see what that's worth, right? And like, it's probably, if it is worth something, then you probably get some ETH POS supporters, right? They're going to have assets on both chains. You're right, the, the centrally off-chain issued ones like stablecoins, Tether, USDC, And this, and this is the Justin Sun thing, right? He wants USDD on ETH1, so that's where they sell it to, right? More activity for his stablecoin. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because you you, you need a you need a stablecoin in the current yeah. DeFi iteration. We were actually talking about this. Do we need a stablecoin? Let's say, and we'll, we'll get into this discussion a bit with Tornado Cash also and the implications and issues that that event um, highlighted, but... Um, they could perhaps, I mean, granted, all the existing pools and all the existing loans yeah. and all the existing DeFi that relies on these stable coins and rap Bitcoin will basically be chaos, mayhem, bricked. Yeah. Um, but like longer term, like if there were a longer term problem with stable coins or if ETHW succeeds in, con- in surviving um, and they don't have stable coin support, they're sufficient, you know, USDD from Tron, like notwithstanding, they could sort of change it to like a mostly like native digital asset based pair environment where ETH and wrap Bitcoin, or yeah. I guess not wrap Bitcoin, ETH and mostly ETH, I guess, become the base pair there. Is that even possible? I mean, I, <laughs> I've always thought of that. Like I'm a bit of a Bitcoin max. I love ETH too. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I always thought like stable coins are like the, the training wheels for eventual crypt, crypto mass adoption. So yeah. you get everyone comfortable with digital wallets, then you have things happen with tornado cash. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but there's censorship issues there. Right. And then people realize the value of these kind of, uh, crypto, crypto native, like as the money, the base money, not not even as the speculative asset, right. As the base pair. I mean, there's obvious reasons why that's today, not, you know, super useful, right. Cause you're trading against Bitcoin as the base pair and it's volatile itself, right. You always want some kind of stable base pair. Um, that's why these things grew. Actually it's why tether, right. Tether was like, uh, you all those old U.S. exchanges couldn't yeah. get access to banking. Yeah, you could, you can't use Bitcoin to like do cross exchange arb, right? Like ten minute blocks, like that arb is going to be gone by the time that's there. Like well, people, there is, yeah. back in the day, people would literally use Ripple to do that instead Just of like it Bitcoin because it was faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and even today, like when you want to do it, you use Tether on Tron yeah. for that use case most likely because it's faster. Yeah. Um, and just you know, you're probably only in that position on that network very briefly, so you don't care about whatever potential Tron like security issues there could be or whatever, right? Because you're just hopping between exchanges. Um, interesting. So, and then, and then, okay, so uh, sticking with ETH and the merge, like why are you bullish on on this as a fundamental reason, you know, for ETH? Like what is the case here? Uh, yeah, if you want to go, I've, I've always thought of like inflation as a security budget, right? And you need to, if people are putting in electricity costs, right, you need to compensate them for that. Um, your TLDR, you're able to shrink your security budget. And if demand stays the same, price should go up. Because this cost of security is yes. lower. Yes, theoretically. Okay, so that that is part of the merge, a reduction in the issuance rate on ETH, but it's not like a characteristic of moving to proof of stake. It's just an additional change that's being made, right, Christine, this dynamic issuance mechanism that's being introduced as part of the merge, right? I think it's arguable like how by how much you reduce the security budget, like how much is required to pay validators to keep them incentivized. But the, but just the idea that you can pay validators less in total than you pay miners 
is the reason for the drop in Got issuance. It. But That's of why, course, like yeah. if you wanted to pay validators the exact same as you miners, you could. Right. But that also maybe perhaps defeats one of like the strengths of why people argue that proof of stake blockchains are better than proof of work because they're less costly. The idea is they're less costly to uh, to secure. Interesting. Um, um, you know, fundamentally, I, I just. It really comes down to like supply demand, and this is a huge supply event for for ETH, right? There's going to be a, a ton of ETH staked. Um, like even today, um, I think there was what 620,000 units of, of of ETH that were um, uh, added added to the Steeth. Yeah, to the Beacon uh, Chain, or yeah, uh, I believe to Lido Beacon yeah. Chain. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a lot of that's over a billion dollars of, of ETH that just got staked over the past like 36 hours, let alone like what's going to happen over the next like, you know, couple months. Um, and so if, if there's a lot of ETH that is going to get staked and, you know, we're expecting, you know, whether it's stablecoin activity, NFT activity, uh, whatever it may be to continue to sort of trend higher, um, you know, this is definitely a, a, a bullish event. So you're saying the supply the, in, the issuance declining, yep. coupled with the fact that actually supply is sort of being taken off the market or out of the float by being exactly. locked up on the beacon chain, even today. Um, just the pure supply demand dynamics alone are a reason to be bullish. Absolutely. So if you think about like, let's say the float is going to go down by like 20, 30%, right? You're talking about an asset, an asset that's worth 200, $250 billion right now. I mean, like to bring it back, like BlackRock has eight trillion dollars in assets, right? Right, and they're starting to dip their toes in, you know, with the recent announcement of uh, you know Coinbase partnership, new uh, Bitcoin trust, etc. That's one asset manager. There are trillions and trillions of dollars that are a bit available to allocate into financial markets, and somebody tells me there's an innovative thing that's only worth two hundred billion dollars right now whose floating supply is about to start going down and all of the smartest, youngest talent in the world is, you know, putting their efforts into it. It's a no brainer. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, and then it just becomes a function of like how high can prices go, not do prices go up. It's like, how high can they go? Interesting. So like you have this, so we have ETH with this case. And also I would just say like fundamentally speaking, like it's been long in the coming this upgrade, it's been taking forever. If it finally comes, just the mere achievement of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, let's just pause there. I mean, just taking a step back, you just had thousands of developers across the world come together and do a, a major software release that took what years of, of planning and, and coordination. Like this is like truly like not revolutionary, but it's, well, maybe. A, it's a big, fucking deal pardon my my language but you know the idea that you know so many people across the world could get together and do something so complex um you know is a pretty big deal and also in contrast to you know some of the the what core bitcoin developers that have sort of been having tensions in the, in the bitcoin community etc it like it, it, it in contrast to that, it looks even better. And then I'm like looking, I'm a big chart guy, as you know, and I, I look at ETH BTC right now going to new trend highs, almost about to trade on, on an eight handle. And I'm like, wow, like there's a clear divergence here. And I'm kind of on the ETH train, pardon. I know I'm around a it's couple of Bitcoin maxis. <laughs> I'm with you, Ben. I'm with you. <laughs> but but, but it's, uh, it's incredibly exciting stuff. And I just think about all the boomers out there 
that are deciding where to allocate assets and them seeing, you know, this kind of energy, this kind of development. And they've seen it before. It was the dot-com boom, right? Like it was, you know, SaaS. Like this is the next iteration of it. And, you know, to me, uh, you know, there's many use cases for blockchains, et cetera. But, you know, the, the use cases are sort of limitless. This is in stark contrast to me, like a month ago, by the way, being the most bearish person. I would two say, ago. though, just uh, great, fascinating points, I mean, in general. But BIM, BIM was, I remember, I think in June, we did a, an episode called Bear Market Update. And at the end, I tried to, you know, be like Jay Powell and bring the podcast to a soft landing. <laughs> um, and I asked everyone if they could provide a, a some pot something that they felt positive about, and Bimnet was speechless, unable to provide one. That was maybe correct. I mean, it was a very bearish period in mid June, and I think by last month in July, you started to turn pretty bullish on the space overall, and that's that's proven somewhat prescient. No, I no appreciate it. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, okay, but but uh, uh, you said a couple of interesting things here. Like, uh, let's talk about ETH BTC a little bit because I mean, I think that yeah. it, you, you know, you mentioned the the core developers. I, I I do think this is a bit overblown, but not untrue, right? Vladimir Vanderlaan is longtime core Bitcoin maintainer. He he said he sort of implied that some of the acrimony um, that's happening inside the Bitcoin community today is is sort of one reason um, why it's not. It's sort of a little bit of a thankless job to be a core Bitcoin developer. Um, that isn't the only reason he's been planning to sort of like transition out of that role for a long time anyway. But uh, Matt Corallo, uh, you know, I think uh, from Spiral, which is Square's uh, like Bitcoin focused development lab. Um, he's a longtime developer of the Lightning Development Kit. He, he uh, sort of came out and said that the sort of toxic maximalism that's present in the Bitcoin community was um, not good. It was a deterrent for developers to work on it. It was... Um, unproductive. There was a bit of a discussion there. Of course, this follows like a long period of recent sort of culture wars inside the Bitcoin um, community. We had Nick Carter on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, he he talked at length about that. Um, so you're right. I, I think that is a, actually I hadn't thought of this, but an interesting sort of um, comparison to the sort of very cohesive nature that we're seeing right now from the Ethereum community, which isn't always and, as, and, a, and as they're cohesive. just getting going. Like once this the merge is done, right? They have like a well, million other like EIP like things to get done. Raise like I mean, I think it's so interesting. I was thinking about um, you know Ethereum hard forks on a regular schedule, and and I've been very critical of that as an upgrade methodology and schedule because it sort of neuters node runners as part of the governance triumvirate. It makes them sort of inherently subservient to the will of developers because you're constantly forced to upgrade on a very short timetable um, or you're kicked off the network, right? And that, that's, I think, a negative of that design style. Um, Bitcoin uses a completely opposite approach, right? But from a pure like value proposition standpoint, it does give a regular cadence of fundamental catalysts to the network, right? And for you know many years, these hard forks weren't like super um, um, consequential, right? A lot of them were just like delaying the difficulty bomb, for example. But since EIP fifteen fifty nine, which was con which was consequential, and now all of these merge related upgrades that are going to start happening once the merge happens. Then we have other upgrades. Finally, the, the developer community in Ethereum can turn to the stuff to be clear people really want, which is like scalability yeah. and usability upgrades. So though we're likely to, I think, see maybe like, what, 18 more months or who knows um, of pretty consequential fundamental upgrades that could also be price catalysts. That's true. That's true. And I think it's also important to note that the reason why we have so many upgrades on Ethereum is because Ethereum 
is trying to accomplish and become a lot more than what Bitcoin is currently capable of. Like all of the features that Ethereum currently, all of its capabilities is not, it's not, it's not something that you can get without tweaking, yeah. without like figuring out new ways to do consensus, new ways to think about blockchain infrastructure, new ways to think about um, data availability and settlement and finality. Like all of these things I think are required to for Ethereum to achieve its vision as a world computer. And that's also why it's a lot more risky because Bitcoin doesn't really need to change. It can just continue to do what it does and TikTok next block, as they say. Yeah. And then and for Ethereum, I think it still needs to prove that its infrastructure, its design is capable of like being a world computer. And so I feel like all of these these upgrades are like step by step milestones in like, yes, we are getting closer to that vision. But until they achieve that vision, it is going to be a ton of upgrades. Does it ossify when it gets there? An event? Is it is there someone does Vitalik come out and like wave a flag and say, congratulations, everyone, we did it at some point and then it stops changing, do we think or no, no, I don't think that's the culture. I think the culture is like constantly iterating and finding new cool shit to do. Interesting. Yeah. So we it's a call it bullshit, but how many bleeps are we going to have to do here? Phineas. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I get that's an, you know, we, we've had this discussion, like to me, like, I think you're right, Christine, that is a uh, sort of requirement. If you're constantly striving towards this, like really feature packed um, and scalable and, and whatever. Right. I mean, even new use cases 10 years from now might require twice the, processing capabilities that Ethereum gets in five years, right? And they end yeah, up Apple's, having to do it Apple's again. Apple's not going to stop pushing iOS it's just, it, updates it, out. It seems like a, it, 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 um, it seems like one of these crazy, I guess they, I think they do have to keep playing it. And one of the reasons is like when you compete on technical innovation, there will always be like a new challenger, right? And in some ways, maybe that's why Bitcoin's differentiation is, um, I think it, I think it is a positive for Bitcoin to not play that game. Now, that being said, I think, I, I don't know, Trey, like, I mean, we still want, I still want some improvements on Bitcoin. There's still stuff we want. Yeah. I, I just, wanted covenants, for example. Like, yeah. We, I mean, you can have small stuff. Like, I, I'm of the camp that I don't necessarily want everything on Bitcoin. I want Bitcoin to be money. And, like, going back to the culture thing, like, people will call, like, cars shit coins, right? Like, I want Bitcoin to be used to purchase everything. I want you to buy your car, your chair, your shit coin, your JPEG. I want Bitcoin to be used for everything. So like, I, I think it's that simple. I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. I think Ethereum's doing a ton of really cool technical work that we can borrow, like especially on the like the ZK space. Um, so yeah, I just want Bitcoin to be used as money anywhere and everywhere. So, but if Ethereum becomes sort of like the computer processing layer, does that mean it ends up being like wrapped versions of Bitcoin for it to be available everywhere? Maybe. I mean, I, I don't think Bitcoiners that want more features like I'm, which I count myself as one of, I don't want like an EVM on Bitcoin, right? Like we want to yeah. keep that thing, you know, battle hardened and, yeah. and, um, but I'm also, yeah, I'm, know. I'm a fan of like the good old fashioned company, you know, like start to start a company, yeah, just start one. a company, have a, have a Bitcoin multi like, and you send Bitmax me Bitcoin. worked great for a really long time. Like Silk Road worked great for a really long time. Um, but yeah, I have no issue. Obviously I have no issues with wrap Bitcoin. I think that makes a ton of sense for low values and like, you know, you're not securing your wealth on that network. Um, it'd be a, a great way to, you know, I also think you could even sidestep Ethereum for a lot of this stuff with the NFTs, especially like they just point to a URL for the most, I mean, except for like maybe art blocks. Like, right. why can't you just have a 
Bitcoin like MetaMask type wallet and buy your NFTs there and have like a nice display, right? To like, be honest, you could like, put pretty easily like you can make tokens on Bitcoin. That's if they don't have to like like trade on a decentralized exchange on Bitcoin, you could easily say like, here's that token, right? Yeah. I mean, you I could, think the trend on is, the op- trend on, is your friend. Um, I mean, it's pretty clear that you know ETH and I guess Solana yeah. are the NFT sort of powerhouses, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Like the idea of getting people that are already accustomed, like that are already in the NFT community, interested in NFTs, getting them to switch over. Um, that's well, tough. that's the thing, right? Bitcoiners don't want to use their Bitcoin for this stuff now. I mean, that, I think that to well, me, that's the that, thing. It's because yeah. it's because they're like all like Austrian like economics like hoard save money. Yeah, like different people use money differently. Like, right. I like to spend my money. Right. You know, like, but you'd prefer yeah. it but to I be prefer global to use, decentralized yeah. money. Exactly. It's secure. Fair enough. But you also don't like. Let's just say you took gold and digitized it like actual gold and, and spend it was, like gold to buy yeah, jpegs people, nobody would spend gold right now like all the, in history like well historically never mind <laughs> well, they did it back in, but, the, yeah. back in the day but like in the 21st century like if you ask people to like use their gold in their investment accounts to buy stuff they'd be like no well there was like, that's use, uh that's my hedge for yeah the, the basement and you know you always spend the worst money crazy. first right yes. that's that's how that always works this is actually an interesting thing too because i want to raise this you know you have the ethereum maximalist crowd that says ultrasound money. I knew you money. were going to raise this. says ultrasound money. You're, you're <laughs> always complaining about that. I am because like I, I, I actually think there's a really good use to have crappier money, good hard money for some uses, right? If I'm going to, you know, build a house out of stone and sell it to you, well, gosh, I'd like to receive something hard in return, right? Like not, but if I'm going to, you know, like do AWS cycles and I'm going to pay for literally like a virtual resource, well, I'd prefer not to spend my gold on that. There should be some more, right? Some more faster shorter term money for that we the dollar is kind of all of these monies today and that if you're a saver it's terrible right because it, it's you know it's lost you know 95 percent of its value over the last 100 years or whatever the statistic is isn't moving to a more quote ultrasound money monetary policy for ethereum detrimental to its use as a currency or gas token for a global computer i've been thinking about this a lot and i do I, I did see like the contradiction between those two narratives, but I think the way that Ethereum is developing technically of having like layer twos and layer threes that aren't, that, you know, have faster transaction times, like faster TPS, they might not have as much security as like finalizing directly to the base layer, but they do have like, um, you know, the benefits of scalability and then anything that's being finalized down to like Ethereum mainnet as being more costly and more difficult kind of makes sense that you would want ETH to become like a very strong, hard money like gold to support the to support layer twos, to support roll-ups. So essentially have you like- You mean to support crappier- like the security of the chain from like a hard money, like to make it more better to, to stake basically? To, to make it? it harder to attack. Like yeah. to make sure that there is like a, a strong current, like a strong native currency. It is a tension though, right? Because like it's one thing to, the question is, do you want to spend money that is- disinflationary right yeah so users wouldn't especially like virtual things like paying gas right like so users wouldn't be paying eth for like a disinflationary currency for these applications they would be paying say like a layer two 
token, like something that's a lot more inflationary. And then the roll up itself would be, you know, judging their costs of like, okay, we've got this amount of transactions that we need to finalize and get finality on. And they pay a certain amount in ETH to to I see. pay it to the Ethereum So, so the end user could use like a, a crappier, faster money on the L2 to buy stuff and interact with whatever. They're not paying on-chain gas in ETH necessarily. Yeah. So it's like the economies on the layer two side don't really need hard money, but like the economy on the Ethereum it's side does argument. need yeah. a very hard I, money. I'm, I'm totally with Christine on this one. I think it's all about economic density, right? Like if you can package all these transactions, it doesn't really, like it matters obviously, but you can kind of divvy up those costs amongst the participants on the layer two to layer three. Another important thing is you need economic uh, capacity, right? Like you look at like MakerDAO or like Uniswap pools, like you need ETH to be very valuable to have other valuable stuff on it, right? Like MakerDAO can't scale like USDC and USDT can because you need, you know, what is it? 150% ETH collateral. Right. If ETH set two, three trillion, all of a sudden there's going to be more die. There's going to be more X, Y, Z, let alone. It's also like a proof of stake network. So you start to get into the actual network security as well. Once right. you start going down in price. Um, so you're saying like disinflationary supply dynamics will, will support price. I think it's and that's good. good for the growth. I, th- I think we're going to get really, really good at making transaction on the main chain economically dense. I think that's the solution for Bitcoin as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, right. More layer twos, more batching, uh, more, more use cases like that, DLCs, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think that I think that's where it, it's headed. And it's actually, I think, a good thing. So you have the um, both both chains are, by the way, pursuing this type of economic density sort of play. Um, I should point out, I guess if it doesn't work and it does disincentivize people to use ETH as opposed to hold ETH token, um, they can change it, right? They can change the issuance schedule. That's been done several times. Uh, I just need to point that out because when you talk about ultrasound money, right? To me, (laughs) the credibly predictable nature of a monetary policy, I think is an important part of that, not simply what the issuance rate itself is. Um, but that's part of their ongoing iteration. I mean, the, the, the pushback I often get, right. Is like, this is, we're, we're working on it. This is a work in progress, right? Nobody is arguing Rome that ETH wasn't is ossified. built in a day. <laughs> I'm still, I still think about my image of Vitalik coming out, waving a flag saying, we did it, everyone. Congratulations. We're done. Everyone go home. ETH works. The clapping meme. The clapping meme. Yeah. Um, that probably doesn't happen. I agree with Trey on that. Let's, let's transition a little bit. Um, it's still going to talk about Ethereum a lot here because let's, but let's talk about this tornado cash incident raises a lot of other, um, I would say like a counter narrative of less, less bullish, uh, stuff for Ethereum, the network itself. Um, not so much immediately, but it's, you know, over the maybe medium term. Um, so tornado cash, just for background an on chain, I'm going to call it a mixer. It's a little bit different than that, but for simplicity, um, an on-chain anonymization protocol um, application, a series of smart contracts that allow users to um, obfuscate the origin of their on-chain Ethereum funds. I supported six or eight tokens or something like that, but let's just say ETH, certainly the biggest one. Um, You can deposit ETH. It gets mixed around in this pool that actually uses really cool um, ZK-SNARK technology. Um, And then when you withdraw the ETH, it, it it, there's no verifiable connection between your receiving address on the withdrawal and the deposit address you initially used, right? Um, but this this application is decentralized. The, the contracts that run the various pools that conduct the mixing are immutable and unchangeable, not upgradable by the team behind Tornado Cash or the DAO that governs it. Um, 
And yet it was added by the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, to what's called the specially designated foreign nationals and something or other list, the SDN list, um, which is actually what that means is they were sanctioned. The uh, tornado cash was sanctioned by the U.S. Department of Treasury the same way that they sanction al-Qaeda terrorists, uh, Russian cyber criminals, um, North, North, Co- North Korean ransomware or hackers, right? Um, and, and what that means is that no U.S. person can interact with Tornado Cash without being subject to heavy fines um, under federal law and perhaps imprisonment the same way I cannot um, have any financial interaction with Al-Qaeda without um, you know, being arrested and fined by the U.S. government. Now, it only applies those the sanctions can only be applied to foreign individuals or entities, right? So that's Tornado Cash, which is an interesting question, by the way. Are they, they're, it's not an individual. If you look at the SDN list, there's no person named, there's no address. Are they an entity? Different question, which we'll debate in a second. Um, the sanctions can only be prov- uh, uh, applied by law to foreign individuals or entities. Um, and then the fines for violating the sanctions can only be levied against U.S. persons. So there's nothing stopping a foreigner, a non-U.S. person, from interacting with Tornado Cash today, legally speaking, unless there is in their jurisdiction, right? The U.S. Treasury does not and the government does not, um, you know, fine or, or try to arrest a foreigner for violating its sanctions, right? Um, this is a big deal for a lot of reasons. We're going to unpack some of them. Um, but you think... There's a big there's there's one issue with this is the first time that OFAC has ever sanctioned a smart contract, and if we want to say it even more broadly, the first time they've ever sanctioned a piece of software, right? So is this an individual or an entity? Uh, we don't know. Um, I, I presume they're considering it a foreign entity. I don't also know if it's foreign. To be honest, it's it's on the it's blockchain. It's, <laughs> it's effectively in the cloud, right? I don't. So it's probably hosted on Amazon Web Services. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but the Ireland deployment probably, yeah, probably. make it foreign. Yeah. No, um, so uh, that that's a question. By the way, like there are policymakers on Capitol Hill who are asking that question about what under what actual rationale does OFAC consider Tornado Cash sanctionable? Um, presumably, they have to have decided that it's a foreign individual or entity. Um, that's a question, but it also does raise questions about privacy. I mean, let's start there. Let me summarize a couple of the other questions, but we'll dive into them separately. But like it, it, the second order effects, I think, are the most interesting and important part of this discussion, which was that wallets, node providers, stablecoin issuers all basically either blocked access to Tornado Cash or bricked the assets that they had issued, which were found in Tornado Cash. Um, that raises huge questions. We're going to talk about that at length. But from a pure privacy standpoint, Trey, I know you're a privacy guy. Like, you know, is this what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean... For, I, I think it's a gross overstep, to be honest. Uh, to me, code is speech, so they are essentially sanctioning speech. Uh, and you can, I won't get into I that, don't know what the that, current law is on that, but well, yes. Code they, is speech. Yeah, co- mean, code is absolutely period. speech. And like, next thing they're going to sanction, you know, disagree, whatever. <laughs> Some <laughs> you, other software? You, you, yeah, you, you get my point. It does um, feel a little bit like, you know, you used Microsoft Word to type something that yeah. was illegal, which is a whole different story. That is speech, right? But so we're going to sanction Microsoft Word, right? Exactly. And it feels it's, a little bit like that. And it's only like the US people that get burned by this, right? Like you saw yesterday, they were like sending 0.1 ETH to like all these like well-known, you know, Oh yeah, some, someone was withdrawing a bunch of their dust from- And like, from, yeah. who knows how much of a headache that's going to be for United States citizens, right? I think like, a big headache. It's a huge headache. I mean, it also goes back to like 
Just to be clear, what you're talking about is someone was withdrawing yes. stuff from that they had in Tornado Cash, but instead of withdrawing it to addresses they control, they were withdrawing it in tiny pieces, dust, to like Jimmy Fallon. Allegedly, yep. though, right? Well, unless Jimmy the, Fallon was We gone. don't know if it's actually him. <laughs> I'm saying a bunch of very famous ENS domains. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, a bunch of fa- very famous <laughs> ENS domains. I mean, right? So an address is not, so we don't, who knows who they belong to, right? Yeah, but yeah. basically dust attacking them, yeah. which causes tornado cash withdrawals yeah. to now be on the blockchain into your address. Can I spend that ETH? I wouldn't touch that wallet personally. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I I do believe um, you're not actually violative of sanctions unless you like intend to and knowingly do so. However, um, if you then try to with interact with say like a centralized exchange, like- Yeah, and they see your- Yeah, well, they're gonna run chain yeah. analysis on your account and be like, dude, it has withdrawals from tornado cash. And then you're gonna yeah. be caught in this big thing where you have to explain that like you didn't do it or whatever and it's a big pain so i didn't mean to interrupt but yeah no i mean that's that's the gist of it um it's sad because like i mean obviously there's a lot of bad shit that goes into tornado cash but there's also like a lot of the eth2 validators prefer to use tornado cash so they can get a fresh start on their Mm -hmm. stuff yeah, Vitalik um, used it uh, when yeah. he donated to Ukraine. I mean, it's a security so risk. So it's, they wouldn't dox his... Like, we talk about the $5 hammer attack or whatever, right? Like $5 wrench attack. $5 yeah. wrench attack. Like, I mean, a hammer would work too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like I, it. you know, if you're filing your taxes, like the government is going to know exactly what you have, where you have it, what you paid. I just don't want the whole world to know. Right. Right? Like, and if I can show, I sent here, I received here... I shouldn't be kosher. I shouldn't be precluded from using that service. It's interesting. Like, yeah, because you can't have like, I mean, let's take a business. Let's say, you know, the, the bull case for, I don't know, DeFi, for example, is that like, oh, all the investment managers and all the brokerages and all the exchanges will happen on chain. But like, you can't put your entire financial history if you're a company, for example, on chain. We don't, we, you know, we, we're a public company, right? Obviously we publish financials, but you know, the world does not have for any company, public or otherwise, real time access to literally every transaction that every company does. Yeah. And, and if you did, that would severely harm like your ability to compete in the marketplace, right? There's a whole bunch of things. And that's just one example, regular folks. I shouldn't like, if I pay you tray for lunch using, you know, yeah. Ethereum, you know, cause you, you bought it for yeah. me. Let's say you're, you're just a colleague, not a good friend. Yeah. Um, and I don't want you to know, like, well, the ad, now, now you have my address yeah. and you can see literally my entire financial history, my bank account. Exactly. Right? So we need privacy. And and without privacy, and this kind of opening up a can of worms here, but it's going to be really hard when the government has a stance to bring off-chain assets on-chain because they are seizable at a fundamental level, right? They exist in the, in the physical realm. Um, so I think what I would like to see is more of a push for the outside world to use native crypto assets, right? Like you get paid in ETH, you get paid in Bitcoin, you get paid in DAI. You can use all these like borrow lend protocols. Um, So like you can keep payroll in Bitcoin and pay people on that, but you don't need to, you know, put your corporate bonds on Ethereum and borrow against DAI. You like the integration happening with bringing crypto assets more into the real world rather than real world assets more into blockchains. Correct. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes. Um, let's let's talk about um, the oh, real quick, just on privacy. One last thing, too. And we wrote about this, by the way. Everyone check out our report on this. We put out yesterday on Wednesday um, about about this entire issue. Right? We come, cover lots of stuff here. But one of the things we talk about is that actually privacy is not illegal. Financial privacy, not illegal. Yeah, Fourth Amendment. What yeah. And for, for money laundering to to be money laundering, it requires the involvement of illicit activity. Right. So you have to be trying to turn dirty money clean. There's yeah. no law against cleaning clean money, yeah. right? Like that's not illegal. 
um, under U.S. federal law, to be clear. And I'm not a lawyer. There might be some jurisdictions where this is different, right? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but under U.S. federal law, money laundering by definition requires that the funds being altered, and there's some steps that you have to do transformed, I forget, it's in the report, um, be dirty. Yeah. And, and even if you don't know they're dirty, technically you can commit money laundering, but they there has to be illicit activity. Yeah. So, you know, is there illicit activity uh, when Vitalik is, you know, withdrawing his, don't using tornado cash before he sends his funds to whomever it is received it on the Ukrainian side to support Ukraine in the war against Russia? I don't think so. Yeah. He just merely doesn't want the Ukrainian recipients to have full access to his entire financial history on chain. Yeah. Right. And so that that isn't money laundering, although it used tornado cash. And I think it's reasonable to point that out. Right. Like we shouldn't allow the idea. And this is you know, this is mostly to the journalists out there. If we have any that listen to this show. Right. <laughs> Stop saying money laundering protocol tornado cash when you write that, because there was a lot. I mean, I think the highest estimate from, was from Nansen um, suggested that 35 percent of the volume on on tornado cash was from uh, illicit activity. I mean, I think Chainalysis said more around 30 percent. That's high, to be clear, that's very high, right? And that's almost certainly why OFAC sanctioned Tornado Cash, right? Because a lot of that activity was probably the Lazarus Group in North Korea, which is literally a hacker group at, in, operating in and at the behest of an enemy of the United States, right? And that is OFAC's job, is to support U.S. national security and foreign policy objectives. So that's why. Um, but, you know, the it other just 60 happens to be like a, an objective nowadays because of all the corporates that have had to go through all this, um, you know, cyber espionage stuff, like all of the hacks that have been going through. That certainly made its way to Capitol Hill and, you know, uh, subsequently I mean, to the FBI. And rightly so. But let's, right, rightfully so. But like, let's not forget about like all the other billions and right. trillions of dollars that are being money laundered the traditional way <laughs> that is still not point. being prosecuted. Was the, uh, banks, like this uh, just happens to be topical at the big moment. Bank. Yeah. I'm not going to um, mention it, but the big uh, bank that had the uh, the, we, uh, the deposit boxes big? that were the perfect size for a secure for a for a briefcase. Yeah. <laughs> the cash I deposit mean, boxes. Um, no, that's a good point. Um, let's talk about the other implications, though, which are very interesting. Right. So I don't know. Christine, help me out here with some of the. Uh, so a bunch of infrastructure providers also blacklisted. And what happened here on the infrastructure side? That's true. Um, so there were. Basically, the way that people access decentralized applications normally isn't by running your own node, your own computer to access the Ethereum blockchain. You use like you go through a website and the website then interacts with the application on your behalf or you try and access like an Ethereum node through um, API calls, RPC endnodes that are hosted by these infrastructure providers. Infura, Alchemy are two big ones. But um, these, these access points to the application were shut down. Like the front end of Tornado Cash's website was shut down. Um, Infura and Alchemy all stopped um, accepting requests to that application. Um, that impacted wallets that were reliant on Infura, like MetaMask. It's the biggest wallet in ETH, right? Um, and then, and then also, like, not even on the front of just, like, accessing the application, but, like, anybody who was involved in the protocol development of the application also found that on, on you know, sites like GitHub, where usually you work on open source code with other people, their accounts were shut down. Like, the, the code repository for Tornado Cash was taken down. Um, so, in summary, like, all the access to the application through third parties were were much more difficult after this these sanctions and then also like even working on that protocol seeing what that protocol um 
seeing how that protocol could run, that was all, all taken down. Yeah. Yeah. So practically speaking, access to the application is, is gone for most people, right? I mean, you, need to be you can run your own node. You can yeah. point your MetaMask to a different RPC endpoint. Yeah. You can, to be clear. You, the, the code is there. The application is still there on the blockchain. Yeah. But the, the access um, that the vast majority of users rely upon to access it was shut down. Yeah, I think it definitely highlights like an importance for people to build these applications if they want them to be permissionless to start doing it in a more like decentralized way and to also and for also people who are accessing or like thinking about getting into web3 but through web2 ways um like the inherent kind of tension tension there is in doing that. Yeah, why don't we just set up like a a node in Switzerland and just public good I think there are there there are right, plenty of right? I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there like if you want to look hard enough like you could still use Tornado Cash it's just like it's difficult if you like just recently set up a, a, To be clear a it's illegal for US persons to yes, use Tornado yes, Cash yes, 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 I'm yes. just throwing that out there but yeah, yeah. but it, it, it's not I think that it's not just Tornado Cash right I mean I think at this point one of the criticisms that First of all, lots of people have been making this criticism about Ethereum, MetaMask, and Fura for a long time. A lot of Bitcoiners have been saying this. A lot of Ethereum people were well aware of this. There's been talk for a long time of like making it more resilient um, and decentralized these access uh, methods. Um, but you know, OFAC today, what's to stop some other agency using some other power, or OFAC again on another application? Well, that's on, what I'm on, worried about. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's because like, okay, you sanctioned this address. I'm seeing this address go into the curve pool. I'm seeing that go to the, you know, a maker vault. Like you could just brick yeah, all like, DeFi. What if the North Korean quick? Lazarus group yeah. decides to like swap for some other coins on Uniswap? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> we, we should probably do some uh, look checking on this. I'm sure Chainalysis and those companies have done it. Like, are they trading this, this money that they like, how are they exfiltrating these hacked funds, by the way? Like the Lazarus group did the, um, Axie Infinity's Ronin Bridge. They they were pegged as the theft of of the funds from that bridge. Like, are they like cleaning them and then trying to like withdraw them on like you know Coinbase? I mean, not Coinbase probably, but like, is that what is that what they're trying to do? Or are they like trading? Is there like an asset management division at Lazarus Group? Do you think? I'd like to believe so. <laughs> but that's the risk, right? To your point, if Lazarus then has a bunch of you know ETH staked in a Uniswap pool. Like, is Uniswap at risk of being designated the same way? And therefore, then also everyone bricked from using it, right? Yeah. But also, as you always say, Alex, I mean, it's not just about could a hacker use your permissionless software? Like, there is also just just movement on the policy side to try and and put regulation, especially on stable coins. And that doesn't require like a hacker group to come in and use your application. It just requires like certain laws to be passed that require, you know, stable coin issuers to, to, to create a lot more oversight of how these stable coins are used. And that in and of itself, I think could have like pretty, pretty big damage on, yeah, on DeFi. That's a great point. Let's talk about the centralized stable coins because one of the of other effects outside of the infrastructure side um, that Christine talked about was USDC. There was $75,000, not uh, that much in the, in the, certainly not relative to the size of Tornado Pool, Tornado Cash, um, or certainly USDC issuance, which is tens of billions of dollars. But 75K of USDC was sitting in a uh, uh, Tornado Cash pool. And, and Circle, and I guess Circle and Coinbase are the issuers of um, um, USDC. They, they froze, the, they blacklisted those specific tokens, right? Um, and I guess your point, Christine, is that um, well, what if there are other laws or rules imposed on Circle 
to cause them to have to more widely blacklist these tokens as they're sort of floating in the secondary public blockchain network, right? That, that would have wide-ranging effect. Yeah, like if you're not allowed to send your stable coins to, say, a wallet that isn't like KYC'd, I think that could have pretty big ramifications on the way that DeFi works on Ethereum. Right, because um, se separate from the fact that it, it, it would probably be detrimental to DeFi if it all had to immediately be fully KYC'd, um, it also, a smart contract probably cannot KYC, right? It can't hold a passport next to its face and take a selfie, right? Like, yeah. and but it so, defeats like the purpose of DeFi. It also Why defeats the DeFi purpose of cash, created. right? Like oh. I have to be able to send my, you know, grandmother in Hungary, if I have to send her some money, she can't be required to like mail us, you know, email a, a selfie of her, or it's crazy of, of herself with her ID and prove her identity to some, you know, office somewhere halfway around the world. It just won't work. Right. And, and frankly, we'll, I'll probably just send her Bitcoin. Yeah, Vitalik had a great piece. It was a couple of years ago, like control is a liability. And I think you're starting to see that, right? Like if Hayden Adams wanted to shut down Univ2, like he couldn't do that. Uh, Jeremy Allaire can, right, with USDC. So like that control that he has is a liability. Um, and I, yeah, it just goes back to my point. Like I, I, it's, it's gonna be tough to bring outside stuff into the on-chain world um, until we have much more regulatory clarity. As a proud, you know, U.S. citizen, it's it's certainly disappointing. Like some of our stablecoin policy, like, you know, we have billions and probably trillions of dollars if we really open this thing up of like treasury demand at at zero percent, right? Like people don't demand a, a an interest rate on their USDC. They just want it's like our perfect digital dollar. Like it's the American version of like the Chinese CBDC, um, and. You know, I'd like to not regulate it to death. Yeah, I mean, I just to be clear, I mean, I think that the 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 world largely agrees on regulation that would say like either certainly provide more clarity on the sure. quality of collateral, of right? Course. A lot yeah. of the regulation is around collateral quality reporting, even mandating certain types of collateral, right? You know, saying oh, you can't do like can't be trading stocks with the money that your depositors give you, right? But you, maybe it's different durations of treasuries and some cash and whatever. Um, but this issue, what, what I call stablecoin transferability, right? I think one of the reasons, there's two main reasons. One, what, why I personally hope that it is preserved in any sort of regulated um, digital dollar framework. One is what we've been talking about, that it becomes very hard to operate in a, in a DeFi ecosystem because the applications themselves aren't individuals or entities necessarily, yeah. and they can't perform KYC. Um, the second, and so, you know, if you want DeFi to succeed, then that's very detrimental to that. The second is that it's, it could be bad for consumer protection if the regulated digital dollar is not feature competitive with other available stable coins. For example, offshore ones that don't adhere to that framework or fully decentralized ones or even algo ones if one emerges that, you know, has durability. Or, or, so you'll actually push people into yeah. those riskier ones. Higher level, you're going to push people into Chinese like digital currencies. You're going to push possible. like like th that is the real competition here, right? Like let's not miss the forest from the trees. Like <laughs> that is what it's going to come down to, like a United States version of this digital dollar versus like a uh, Chinese version of yeah, this digital dollar. Yeah, it shouldn't just dollar. be a copy. It should be competitive it, it on should, features. It should be competitive on features and it should be freer, right? Yeah, As, that's what I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the Chinese uh, digital yuan, uh, so so called, um, is it appears to be a total surveillance state, yeah. basically, right? So we shouldn't just clone that <laughs> as America, right? We should compete on... 
we should really compete on the playing field, right? Yeah. And say, you know, use ours. Yes, it's tied to the dollar, which is a better currency than the renminbi, but it's also a better system, right? Yeah. You can trade it. You don't have to. Um, anyway, this this raised a lot of questions, I think, in the in the Ethereum community overall because of the widespread use of stable coins across all these on chain. Um, and by the way, also centralized exchanges would yeah. that use them as well would face a lot of uh, tough tough issues. Um, it's very interesting these two narratives, right? And this we've already seen, by the way. One actually, before I summarize here, MakerDAO, right? Yeah. Even the two largest decentralized stable coins, um, Dai and Frax. Um, both rely heavily on USDC. I think yeah. we saw about two thirds of issued DAI, which is the stablecoin issued by MakerDAO, um, actually relies on USDC as collateral, two thirds of it. Um, and I think 90% of FRAX is actually sort of just wrapped wrapped USDC also. So yeah, this, this puts those seriously at risk. And we just saw, we just started to see that MakerDAO, many people, I and I'm gonna, I'm gonna call myself out on this one. I have been calling ever since USDC was added as a collateral type in March of 2020 um, to make her doubt for it to be removed because it is this major liability. I can confirm this, by the way. <laughs> uh, don't worry. I, if you go on my Twitter feed, I've been systematically retweeting all of my complaints about it since this <laughs> happened over the last two days. And, and the make her doubt community is finally, it looks like starting to really seriously talk about it. Rune Christensen, the original founder was in the discord uh, today and yesterday really raising this. How, how could they unwind USDC as a collateral type and make her DAO? Set the interest rate up to 20% and make everyone close their CDP. Right, and, just incentivize them to and, close it. I mean, it would it would be mayhem, to be fair. I mean, I think you need to do that gradually, right? 2%, 4%, right? You don't want to do it overnight. Yeah. Because then you, you sort know, of the, set the like a date in the lack. future yeah. that, like, we're going to get to this untenably high interest rate at some point, but we'll do so gradually. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, if, if you're worried about USDC, you should be worried about real-world assets, too. So yeah, like, like, interesting. I mean, I, I think out of all the real-world assets, probably, like, Circle is, like, the most crypto-native, like, going to be in your corner um it's probably less so with the railroad i mean maybe even, even if it's equal right like it's the same issue so we talked about this on a prior episode with our uh, intern lucas um who, who talked a lot about the real world asset right they added like there's there's a bank i think huntington valley bank also like sock gen has yeah. has a maker vault um where they're tokenizing various types of traditional i don't know assets i don't even know what they are so i'm not going to speculate i forget what they are but Yes, like those are also ruggable in a similar way. Well, it's, it's not even if they're ruggable. It's like these things aren't on chain. They're not immediately liquid, right? You can't wait six months and like see if something's under collateralized, right? Like liquidations are going to go through. That's People are going to so lose So you're state. saying just generally it's, it's, just, it's, it's a It's a duration mismatch, right? I'm like when you can liquidate the funds. It's interesting. What do you think is like a good alternative to getting more stability with a stable coin but not relying on centralized stable coins and like real world, like diversifying your asset class. Like if you constantly have to rely on ETH and other very volatile crypto assets alone, can you really achieve like scale with a decentralized stable coin? Not to be terrible, but I don't, I don't think so. I think it's like the whole like monetary, poly tri mon monetary policy trilemma, but like you can't have free and open exchange. I, I don't know, Bim would know better than me, but there's like a trilemma and like we're basically breaking that, right? Unless we issue it on chain. Yeah. Or have I, it way over collateral. I mean, uh, the the path forward for me um, in terms of stable coins certainly is centralized. Like there, there's it's a combination of centralized and decentralized. Like you're putting you know centralized USDC on decentralized applications, uh, but eventually, like you're going to go towards a model where 
you know, banks are using stables. And though the stables that the banks are using are going to be the ones that are dominant in, in DeFi, the, the ones that are going to be most compliant. Um, and what we really care about in DeFi is getting trillions of dollars onboarded, right? Not like, you know, the 56 billion in scraps that, that USDC has. There are people that do trades in one minute that are bigger than all of USDC's entire market cap, right? And so the way you get trillions of dollars onboarded onto to um, DeFi is by having them be regulatory compliant. And the only way they'll ever be regulatory compliant is if they're, they're centralized and they're issued by a centralized agency that's regulated by, you know, FINRA, the Fed, the OCC, so Remember, on and yeah. so forth. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, ideally in my ideal stable coin pays me out the, you know, interest that, you know, they get from buying T-bills or short-term securities. I have the option to do Euro stables, yen stables, et cetera you know, whatever it may be. Um, and eventually, like, that'll lead to sort of a much faster settlement system for, for currencies, right? Like, you don't need Fedwire. Like, you would just have, like, something on the back end that represents, like, a credit or, or whatnot. Um, and if you know uh, anything about sort of the financial plumbing of the world, like, instant settlement would revolutionize things, um, you know, with respect to, like, FX settlement or, or bonds and so on and so forth. So the tech is there. If you give banks an opportunity from a regulatory standpoint um, to sort of issue their, their own stables or have a consortium or whatever it may be, then that's when you can really get the, you know, the trillions of dollars onto DeFi. And that's when it'll become like a real success in, in my eyes. So no algo stable coin is what you're algo saying. Algo stable, no, no. <laughs> but it's not just no algo stable coins. It's also like no decentralized stable coins and then like no way to have cash in DeFi. Like I feel like if like there will always be, if it's issued on chain by a centralized issuer, even if there are like, I don't know, the US government saying like, this is not something, we don't like track your identity on chain, et cetera, et cetera. Like I think it, there will always be that back door where like those kinds of coins can be sent. Like, I feel like that vulnerability will always exist. Then. I 100% agree with you. I think in a situation like that, you're less concerned with volatility and more concerned with censorship resistance. And that's right. when you go to Bitcoin and ETH. Yeah. Right. Like, I, 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 yeah. see. I mean, personally, I love the censorship resistance argument, the, the privacy, but that's never really what, what drew me to crypto. What drew me to crypto is that it's just a fundamentally much better financial system. It's, it's quicker, it's faster, it's more transparent in, in a lot of ways. Um, and that's, you know, how we really like grow the asset class from, you know, a trillion dollars to 10 trillion to 20 trillion. Right. So and it's, like, it is interesting. It's like a different, it is two different views. I think yeah. they probably, I, I honestly think you're both, you're all right here, um, where we end up with a new version of the, you know, sort of traditional financial system built on better rails that is regulated and is KYC, but then the, the Ethan Bitcoin certainly those assets exist yeah. and those networks and those aren't KYCable at, you know, obviously, you know, endpoints and whatnot and whoever, but like those are free float, secure, decentralized. The question is, do your, and your point, Christine is we can have that parallel really big and growing, um, traditional economy being built using regulated and KYC stable coins as the base. Yep. Will there also be a bifurcation where a separate, you know, digitally native based system is built and do we one day by the way in that system see 
a decentralized stablecoin persist, even just like over collateralized die, right? I mean, Psy, they call it now, yeah. used to just be ETH, right? Yeah. That wasn't the reason, the only reason that it, it lost its peg so badly on March 12th, 2020, that it was only ETH. It was also problems with the Ethereum network and it was the oracles not being able yeah. to update, right? It's like, you, you could go back to that. Could you? I don't know. I think that was a pretty big issue, like the volatility of the underlying asset and then the yeah. lack of like being able to diversify the type of assets that's supporting your your stable. Yeah. And, and diversifying a way to just other digitally native tokens is like super high beta to yeah. ETH, right? Yeah. So it doesn't do much. So it didn't, it didn't that's really. why they had, okay. So yeah. Yeah, I, it does feel like. But in it, that situation, then we don't have that alternative. We don't have the decentralized stable. And so we, we still have the have native have digital very, assets yeah. that aren't that aren't like what Bimnet is talking about, right? We have the. But that's not DeFi. We have e Well, you could. Well, this is what we were talking about before. Do you start to get like Uniswap pools that are like ETH versus regulated USD, and then others that are like you know ETH versus BT? I mean, you have these pools already, but like, does ETH or B Bitcoin? regain a big part of its old mantle of being the base trading asset, right? For some of those types of DeFi. It, it seems that, like that's what the government wants. Yeah, they, do, they don't want dollars ultimately surviving. To be clear, like when we talk about this transferability issue um, that we, ex like, we, we expect uh, that regulated US stablecoin issuers will at some point be required either by law or by a regula regulator, you know, absent a big push here, to prohibit the transfer of their tokens to secondary between secondary wallets that aren't whitelisted previously, right? And that's the issue we're actually talking about here. That's what makes DeFi basically unusable in its current form um, because those smart contracts are addresses that have to receive yeah. the stable and they, we don't think, can perform KYC. So it's a big issue. I mean, I think the stablecoin thing is really a fascinating and big issue. It's, it's, it's one where, you know, Bitcoiners who want Bitcoin to become the global reserve currency really differ, I think, in, in big ways from, um, you know, sort of the Ethereum-based DeFi um, community that really doesn't even, I've never even once heard people say that Ethereum should be the global reserve currency, right? They, they're very supportive, broadly speaking, I should say, you know, I don't want to paint everyone with a big, big brush here, but of a of the vision that BIMnet, um, you know, is promoting, which is that DeFi becomes the core global financial infrastructure. Yeah. I'd love to see it one day. Maybe awesome, right? Like you post your Google stock on Aave and mm -hmm. borrow some USDC against it. Like oh. I, I would love that to be the case. Like I hope we get there as a country. A lot of steps between here and there. Yeah. Both, I guess we got to wait for Ethereum to... I need a bunch of new regulators as well. I was going to say, you got to wait there. for it. Well, I don't know. That, that's a whole interesting <laughs> conversation. Like, maybe yeah. we're going to wait and see what happens there. Washington is working on this question, right? Who should regulate what, how, et cetera. Um, I mean, yeah. But, but you, they can barely figure out, like, amongst themselves, and they're telling everybody else what well, to do. It's it's ridiculous. But, there's a lot of movement. Exactly. We've talked about it in, in uh, uh, on this podcast of, of movement in Congress to help uh, move those conversations along one way or another. You probably need more upgrades to Ethereum if it can handle that thing, which Christine has told us is, is really on there. Um, and you probably need a lot more regulatory clarity for that to happen. Um, but we're I think we're moving in that direction in both cases. I'm just personally concerned as this counter, a, a sort of a bear that tornado cash really exposed a, a bearish counter narrative here. Um, Cause there's, it, again, we talked about stables, but the, the infrastructure access points is a big part of this as well. 
Um, we couldn't even, we were writing this report on OFAC and Tornado Cash the other day. We couldn't even look at the code on GitHub. They'd already taken it down for, <laughs> for research purposes, to be clear, for research purposes, mm -hmm. right? Um, that, that is, that's, that's really tough, right? I mean, you could see that impacting a lot more applications like Trey said and, and whatnot. Well, I mean, I think we've done a lot of talking here. This is a really good one. You guys, um, really appreciate Trey joining us, uh, for the first time. Uh, we'll, we'll have you back Trey. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been yeah, a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, and, and thanks to Christine as always, um, follow Christine on Twitter. She's been covering the merge like extremely closely. I think, you know, I, maybe I'm a little biased since I work with her, but I think better than anyone else I've seen cover it. That's Christine underscore D Kim on Twitter. Um, and, uh, and, and read that report. Um, it's on, it'll be on our new website, um, at some point. And, uh, but we've tweeted it and, um, go to our Twitter accounts or galaxy Research's Twitter account, GLXY research to see that report and, um, on OFAC and tornado cash. Cause we really like probably break down a little bit more like, uh, or in a bit more organized fashion, <laughs> the risks and implications, uh, that we talked about here on the podcast. Um, that's all we have. Everyone have an excellent weekend. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains, uh, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com slash research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. That's all for today. See you next time.